The grace of God is given to all men. Jesus didn't die for some, for a select few. That's the error of a limited atonement. Neither did because Jesus died for all mean that all saved. That's the error of universalism. Jesus shed his blood for all. It is sufficient to save anyone, but it is only efficient for you when you believe. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are learning the meaning of some technical terms as part of our study of the book of Romans. In chapter 3, verse 24, we find the word justified, and Pastor Carl spent a good amount of time explaining that term last week. As we pick up today, he amplifies on that and discusses the difference between justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is an act. Sanctification is an ongoing process where God does shape you into the image of Christ. And in glorification, God brings the two together, where your position of being justified and your practice of being sanctified are brought together and that you receive a resurrected body like Christ without a sin nature, where you will never, ever, ever again be able to sin. So the voice of pardon says you may go. You've been led off from the penalty, from the consequences your actions deserve. The voice of forgiveness says, I no longer hold a debt against you, I release you. But the voice of justification says, not only is your sin pardoned, not only do I not hold a debt against you, but I declare you righteous in my sight. I pronounce you holy in my sight. I pronounce you a saint. And so the catchphrase, just as if I never sinned, is very negative and it is not accurate. Rather, it would be much better to say, just as if I always obeyed. Because justification is not simply the remission of sin, it's not simply the forgiveness of sin, it's a new status, it is a declaration in the presence of God of how he looks at you through his son. God puts to your account, on your record, his righteousness. Not only does he wipe the slate clean, that's forgiveness. He declares you holy, that's justification. So justification first is an act of God. We're not done with it. Paul is going to take us deeper in the days ahead. Secondly, justification is a gift from God. Not only is it an act of God, but secondly, it is a gift from God. Notice how verse 24 begins being justified as a gift. Literally, the Greek text reads, it's a little wooden, being justified without a cause. Uh, the Old King James says being justified freely, as does the 1901 American Standard Version. Most of you this morning are reading the New American Standard, but the Old American Standard said being justified freely. It's the Greek word dorian. It's the same word Jesus used in John 15 when he said, they hated me without a cause. They hated me, Dorian. He was saying to his disciples, people hate me in this day, and they have no cause to hate me. So we could read the verse, I suppose, being justified without a cause. Paul uses the same word, Dorian, in 2 Thessalonians 3. Listen to these words. 
He said, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, the new King James says. Nor did we eat anyone's bread for nothing, the old King James says. And our translations here say, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Dorian, same word. So you could translate, I suppose, the verse, being justified without paying for it. From man's side of the equation, how much does it cost us to be justified? Absolutely nothing. It is without a cause. It is given freely. It is without paying for it. And like every true gift, it is not earned. God doesn't look down on you and say, well, because he is so sharp, or she is so intelligent, or he is so savvy, or he is so talented, or he is so rich, I am going to rescue him and save him, but because he is so crummy, I'll leave him alone. No, there is not a cause in you. The cause is in God Almighty. We had nothing to offer God but raw sewage. But God reached down and he said, in essence, even though there is not a blessed thing in you that deserves this, I want you nonetheless. That's the doctrine of justification. You say, is that a bad thing or a good thing? It is a good thing when you really understand it. Because when you understand this new position is not based on you, then you understand how this new position cannot change. Where if you slip up, God doesn't say, oops, I'm taking that sainthood away. No, this is an eternal status, a declaration as an act of God. In fact, notice, it's interesting, very often justified is just in a past tense, but here he says, being justified. And in the Greek, follow this, you can understand this. It's a present, passive, participle. Remember, tenses in the Bible refer not just to the time of time, but the kind of time. This is an ongoing present tense that cannot change. And it's in the passive voice. And the passive voice conveys the idea that the subject, namely us, are acted upon by an outside power, namely God. That is, God says, I want you. And you have a new status, not because of you, but because of my activity of being forever ongoing, always righteous in my sight. So justification is an act of God. Justification is a gift from God. Third, I want you to see justification is by the grace of God. Look at verse 24 again. Being justified as a gift, how? By his grace. What is the source of this great act of justification? God in his grace. Now the Apostle Paul first says we have nothing to do with it. But now he turns around and he tells us how God did it. That this is just like God. Everything is in him. There's nothing in us. It's totally by his grace. Now you've heard the acrostic before. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's a good, accurate, biblical definition. That's good. That's what grace is. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to Romans chapter 11. Just a few pages to the right of where you are. Romans chapter 11. When you're in Romans 11, remember you're in the national section. Romans 9 deals with Israel's election, how God chose her out of all the nations of the world to bring Messiah. Romans 10 deals with their rejection, their unbelief. Um, and then Romans 11 deals with their future uh, restoration. 
So one deals with their past election, their present rejection, and then their future reception. In the future, during the time of the Great Tribulation period, the Jewish people are going to believe on the one whom they pierce. They're going to trust Jesus as Savior. There's going to be a great revival that is going to be led by Jewish people from Israel around the world. It's an exciting concept to think about. But here in Romans 11, he's describing the grace of God and that even in Paul's day, while most Jews as a nation had rejected Jesus as Messiah, and his explanation in the 10th chapter is because like many people today who are Gentiles because they were self-righteous, they didn't need a Savior because they thought they were okay, here in the 11th chapter, he says, in spite of that, God always had a remnant. Look at verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Of course not. God hasn't rejected the people of Israel to, because it's them that he brings the Savior. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Remember that in 1 Kings 19, go back and read it, when Elijah has that great encounter when most of the people were in apostasy, worshiping false gods. And Elijah pleaded and he said, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But Elijah was mistaken. God had a remnant even in his day. What was his divine response? But what is the divine response to him to Elijah? God says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God had his remnant. And then in verses 5 and 6, he goes on and he explains the nature of grace. Don't miss this. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. You could look around churches in the first century. In every church, including the church at Rome, there were Jewish believers who had come and embraced Jesus as Lord. Even in this church, we have a couple of Jewish families who confess Jesus as Lord. You go into Israel, and in virtually every community and city, there's a group of Messianic Jews. In the United States alone, there's over 100,000 Messianic Jews. And it was true in Paul's day. Paul understood more than Elijah did, that God has always had his remnant. Now look at verse 11, pay, verse 6. Pay attention, eleven six. But he says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now verse 6 is the spiritual dynamite to those who will try to mix grace with works in order to be saved. And grace, Paul is arguing, loses all of its character when you try to mix grace with it. Because God never saved anyone on the basis of works. Only by grace. What makes the grace of God the grace of God is you cannot add works to it. So God is saying basically make up your mind. You're either going to be saved by works or you're going to be saved by grace, but you cannot be saved by grace and works. Now, I was taught growing, to, uh, growing up that going to heaven was like rowing a boat. And one oar was grace, and the other oar was works. And they said if you just pulled the oar of grace, you'd go round and round and round and round. If you just pulled the oar of works, you'd go round and round and round the other way. And so we're saved, they argued, by grace and works. We needed to pull both oars in order to get to the other side. 
The only problem with that illustration is we're not going to heaven in a rowboat. No, grace is free. It is unmerited. Now, we're not done with verse 24. When we come next week by God's grace to this verse, we'll move from the source of justification, God in his grace, to the ground of our justification, which is Christ in his cross. But let's apply it to our own lives today. Let me suggest a number of applications that I believe we can take from this text. Number one, I am reminded that God's grace has no debts to pay. Go home and think hard on that today, that God's grace has no debts to pay. God's grace is free and unmerited because God had no debts. We've seen in the doctrine of condemnation from 118 to 320 that the only thing God owed us was the wrath that our sin deserves. God did not have to take on human flesh and die on a cross. Jesus Christ did not have to leave the splendor of heaven and shed his innocent propitiatory blood on our behalf. God owed us nothing but his wrath. It was in God's grace that he obligated himself that he promised a savior that we do not deserve. There was nothing in us that moved God to act. God's grace is sovereign it is entirely rooted in his person. And when you understand that you are the object of divine grace, it will weave into your life in obedient humility. You will fall on your face before God in gratitude. So number one, grace has no debts to pay. Number two, God's grace is hated by the proud natural man. God's grace is hated by the proud lost person. Jesus drove home that point that it would be hated by the unbeliever who is not open to the gospel when he told a parable. It's recorded in Luke 18. This would be a good parable for you to use in your personal evangelism to someone who's trying to earn his way to heaven. Let me remind you of it. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's what those who hate grace do. They trust in themselves and they look down on others. He said two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. The Pharisee was deluded about prayer for he prayed, the text says here, to himself. And he told God and anyone else listening how good he was. I, I tithe, I, I fast, I go to church every week. And I certainly thank you that I'm not like this unrighteous, wicked tax collector. But that, again, is what grace haters do. They look at other people with a sense of disdain. What's the root of all racism? It's not understanding grace. Why is this church so diverse? Because people have had an encounter with the grace of God. Here's a man, he said, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. If you know the Old Testament, God required them to fast just once a year on the Day of Atonement. And if you know the Pharisees of the day, they, according to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, where he gave that scathing sermon against them and those repeated woes, he said that they tithe right down to the, right down to the um, spices in their garden. But the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. 
but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The man who repeatedly smote his breast because he knew that the heart was desperately wicked, that that was the root of the problem. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner is in the NIV. That's very sloppy. It's articular. God, be merciful to me, the sinner, because he sees himself as a sinner among sinners. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, he went home dignified. The tax collector went home justified. The tax collector went home justified, saved, declared righteous. The Pharisee, he just went home. And in a few minutes, hundreds of us are going to leave these doors. And some of us are going to leave justified because we've been saved by the grace and mercy of God. And some of us, because we're proud and unwilling to bend and to come to God in a bankrupt state without a cause and to receive grace that is freely given, we'll leave dignified. When Paul comes to the conclusion of this little sermon in verse 27 of Romans 3, he'll say, where then is boasting? Answer, it's excluded. Why can't anyone boast or brag about salvation, Paul? Answer, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of God. Grace does not act where there is human merit. You've heard me say it hundreds of times, God either saves you all by himself without any help from you, or he'll never save you at all. Third, I'm reminded not only that the proud, unsaved, natural man hates grace, but that God's grace must be received. God's grace is available to all, but it has to be received. And Paul has been driving that point home. Let me give you a verse that he gives to Pastor Titus that gives us this balance. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, that is believers, Paul and those who were believers to whom he was writing like Titus, instructing us to deny ungodliness. So the grace of God is given to all men. Jesus didn't die for some, for a select few. That's the error of a limited atonement. Neither did because Jesus died for all mean that all saved. That's the error of universalism. Jesus shed his blood for all. It is sufficient to save anyone, but it is only efficient for you when you believe. And so he has been driving that point home of the necessity to receive the grace of God. We just read in verse 22 that this grace is through faith for all who believe. When Andrew Jackson was president of the United States in 1829, there was a man in prison by the name of George Wilson in the state of Pennsylvania. And he was to be hung by the neck until dead for murder and mail robbery. For whatever reason not known to us today, the president of the United States pardoned this gentleman. They took the pardon to the governor of the state, who in turn had it brought to the prison, and all George Wilson needed to do was to receive it by signing it. And he said, and I quote, I will not accept the pardon. I refuse the pardon. I want to be hanged. No one had ever done this before in the history of our nation, and his case ended up being decided by the Supreme Court. 
And at the time, the Chief Justice John Marshall wrote in his unanimous decision these words, a pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. If it is refused, it is no pardon. And so George Wilson was hung by the neck until dead. Jesus Christ this morning with his nail-pierced hands invites you to be declared righteous, to be saved, to be forgiven. But you must receive this justification. You must respond in faith to the grace of God Almighty. Finally, I'm reminded that God's grace is a demonstration of just how much he loves us. We didn't get to it yet, but when we come to verse 24, we will move to the ground of our justification, Christ in his cross. And next week, I hope, us, hope that we will think about the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. Without any cause, God redeems us at a great cost to himself, without any cause or cost to you. And we will see that the cross is not only a demonstration of his righteousness, but as Paul will argue in Romans 5, a demonstration of his love. The grace of God is love in action. And so God can say to rebellious, ungodly, fallen sinners that they are holy in his sight. And so he will call us in Romans 1.7, beloved of God. Now, I know Romans 1.7 in some translation just says loved of God. Again, that's sloppy. The New Testament is reflected in virtually every English translation. It says beloved of God, and there's a difference. And if you were here for the introductory sermons, we discussed that difference. I love my children, and I may love your children, but I don't love your children like I love my children. My children are my beloved. They are beloved by Carl Brogy. They are a member of the beloved in the Brogy family. God looks down at the world and he loves the whole world. But those who have been saved are his beloved. He has a special affection in his heart towards those who have responded to the cross. So the Lord can say in his high priestly prayer, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them. Then he'll say, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them how? Even as you have loved me. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He is saying the Father loves those who are his own. That's the context. As much as he loves his Son, Listen, that is a marvelous thought. Let that roll deep into your heart today. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He cannot love you anymore, and He cannot love you any less. He loves you through His Son. He has loved you in Jeremiah's words with an everlasting love. And that truth will cause you to fall on your face and worship. With the Apostle Paul say, He died for all so that all who live will no longer live for themselves, but for Christ who died and gave himself on our behalf. A wife barred her prized husband's vehicle, and she went out and wrecked it. He loved that car, worked hard, saved the money for that car, but it was totaled. And as she went into the glove compartment to get the insurance papers, he had a note there. Remember, sweetheart, 
It's you that I love. What was he saying? He's saying, the car is not important. It's you that are important. It's you that I love. And you may have wrecked your life this morning. But God says, I love you. And I want you to be a member of my beloved. Now, our Father, we deserve nothing but wrath by nature. We are children of wrath. But in your divine and sovereign mercy and grace and the deadness of our sin, you sought us. Thank you for the wonderful work of justification, for the new eternal standing that we have in your sight and how it motivates us to begin to, in our practice, seek out what you have declared us to be in our position. I pray today, Father, for someone who is listening to my voice, who is trusted in something plus. Maybe their works, maybe Christ plus works, but they've never come to you the only way that we can come by grace alone, through faith alone. But they've heard what the Scripture declares today. And you've spoken to their hearts, and today is the day for them to be saved. My friend, if that's you, then I invite you to respond in humility, to come without a cost, to come bankrupt, to say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I can never save myself. Nothing I've done or might do can even help save. But I thank you that you led, left the splendor of heaven, that you took to yourself humanity, and you were obedient to the point of death on a cross. For me, you took my place in all of my judgment. And when you were raised from the dead, you made a declaration that your payment was accepted by the Father. And you promised that whoever will call on your name will be saved. Call on him today. Say, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me, I will spend the rest of my life serving you. Father, help someone today to do that and help those who have done that to be gripped with these truths. That our lips would be open in praise and our mouths would be ready in declaration to tell both men and women and boys and girls of a Savior who has redeemed them. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for His name's sake. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled, God's Way of Salvation, visit searchthescriptures.org and search for program ROM14. You can also listen to it or download it using our Search the Scriptures app, available from the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And of course, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy of God's Way of Salvation. And when you contact us, why not make a generous gift to this ministry? It is through the prayers and financial support of our listeners that we're able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a world desperately needing to know Him, as well as providing hundreds of free online resources. Just click on the word Give on the STS app or at our website searchthescriptures.org or call 
787-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we begin a look at the power of the cross. Join us then as we search the scriptures.